Yes, thank you very much. Thank you all for coming on this lovely evening. I'll try and keep you entertained. I thought it would be better for jumping around in front of you rather than speaking from the, the podium there. Um, what I'm going to talk about is uh, the subject of the lecture that I've written. Uh, I'm going to add quite a bit to it actually tonight from the text that you've seen, Fanis. Uh, I'm going to talk about uh, options for the future relationship. Uh, the idea here is to, to start to think about where we're headed in medium and long term rather than the focus up to now has been largely about the transition period and the withdrawal agreement, the contents of that withdrawal agreement. Only now are we starting to think about what the options are for the so-called future relationship that will kick in after the end of the transition period, probably in December 2020. I think two different types of factors are going to determine that long-term relationship. One is the economics and the economic interests of the two sides, the UK on the one side and the EU27 on the other side. But the other factor, of course, is the politics. And what I'm going to try and persuade you is that economics and politics are pointing in very different directions, not just for the UK, but also for the EU27. I'll then introduce you to a very simple way of thinking about the bargaining between and where that might lead, and uh, why I think that probably at least the initial stage of the negotiations will settle on quite a basic free trade agreement. I think the government would like us to reach a much broader, bigger package. Uh, I think mainly for political reasons, that's going to be very difficult for both sides. That's not going to be the end of the world, though. The relationship between the UK and the EU27 will carry on. Uh, it will be a permanent feature of British politics after we've left. That's a kind of depressing thought, I think, for a lot of people. Uh, if you uh, and listen to the, the Swiss ambassador, came and spoke at the LSE, and he said there's two things you need to learn now that you're leaving the EU. One is that the EU will not go away. It will be a permanent feature of your politics. And two, you'll continue to lose once you're out. Uh, uh, and what I've done is I've looked at public opinion data in Norway and Switzerland compared to Sweden and Austria. What is interesting is the public opinion in Norway and Switzerland have become more anti-European over the last 10 years relative to Sweden and Austria. And this is probably where we are heading. First of all, what are the basic options? And we've heard a lot about hard or soft Brexit. In fact, it's not a dichotomous choice, it's a continuum. So on the, the softest side, we have the European Economic Area. The, 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 here, this would be the UK leaving the EU, joining EFTA, and becoming a member of the European Economic Area, like Norway, often called the Norway option. This would mean that the UK remains part of the single market, although not the customs union. I'll come and talk about the customs union a bit later, or perhaps in, in Q&A. Uh, you could be part of the customs union as well as being in the UK, but Norway's not in the customs union. Being in the single market means several things. It means accepting the complete free movement of goods, services, capital, and labor, so free movement of people. It means accepting all EU laws, essentially with a few little opt-outs here and there. And it means accepting the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice via the fig leaf of the EFTA Court. But it does mean retaining sovereignty or gaining, regaining sovereignty in some areas, particularly agriculture, fisheries, Justice and home affairs, um, foreign affairs, plus external trade policy, if it means meeting the customs union. The next one down would be what people are starting to call EEA minus or Norway minus, which would be you take essentially the EEA and you take out bits and pieces from it. 
when you try to take that bit spot. And the major thing that the UK would like to take away from it, if you started the EEA and moved, would be to remove the complete free movement of people, to have a break of some kind, a cap or an emergency break or something on the complete free movement of people. The Liechtenstein Protocol, people have called this because Liechtenstein has a little protocol, the treaty of the European Economic Area that allows them to have some restrictions on the free movement of people. Could that be adapted for the UK? Something to bear in mind, of course, which has not been part of the British debate, is if we did end up in the EEA, the EEA would inevitably change. It wouldn't stay the same as it is now. And you could argue that the EEA right now would mean the UK becoming a vassal state back to that, or I prefer to call it the Puerto Rico option for the UK, the Commonwealth of the EU. Uh, but the EA would change. There would probably be, the, with the UK in it, the EA would evolve some probably some new decision-making mechanisms, some new cooperation between the non-EU member states and the EU member states. Next along would be uh, the most comprehensive free trade agreement ever signed between two states, what you could call a free trade FTA plus or a Canada plus or for David Davis, the Canada plus plus plus. <coughs> what, they, what this means is to say, take all of the best bits of the existing free trade agreements that the, the EU has signed with Canada, South Korea, Japan, and everybody else, and we add to it as much as we possibly can. So this really means financial services. For the UK, it's largely about financial services. Financial services is not included in any meaningful way in any existing free trade agreement that the EU has signed with anyone else, or let alone anybody has signed with anyone else. Trade free trade agreements. The word free here is, I think, very misleading. They should probably be called regulated trade agreements. There's nothing really free about a free trade agreement. It's essentially an agreement that says we agree to trade in a subset of goods and services according to the following rules. That's not a free trade agreement, it's a regulated trade. And so this would be take the basic goods agreements and add on as much as possible for financial services. A basic free trade agreement would essentially be a goods agreement that says we agree to carry on trading goods without any tariffs or quotas on these goods. That's the sort of thing that the EU has already with South Korea and Canada as the two biggest agreements and has already signed with Japan. And would, you can argue, be relatively easy to agree. There's some arguments about what it means for rules of origin and these types of things. Um, there's some arguments about you know, regulatory agreements. But largely, you're basically a goods agreement. And then if we fail to reach an agreement, either we fail to reach an uh, agreement on the withdrawal agreement and transition, or once we've left, we fail to reach agreement on what comes after the end of the transition period, or we fail to extend that transition period, we would fall out at the end of the transition period in December 2020 without a deal, and we would then just trade with the EU under the normal rules of the World Trade Organization. So it's a continuum from softer to harder types of options. I'm going to talk then about the economics and the politics of these two of these different options. Starting with the economics. Uh, the, the economists are various different teams of economists who try to model what the medium term implications would be. I've, in the paper, actually, I talk about several different models. Here, I'm just going to talk about HM Treasuries options that was leaked in, in 2018. This was internal analysis by the, the guys down across the street over here, modeling what would be the impact on GDP over a 15-year period. If the UK just moved into the EEA option, they estimated it would be around 2% 
picked on GDP. That doesn't mean GDP would fall by 2%. It means that the GDP would be 2% lower than it would be otherwise. So the UK could carry on growing, it would just be growing not as fast as it would have done had we stayed in the EBA. And the compound effect of that slower growth rate would be 2% over 15 years. The Canada option of a basic free trade agreement, the estimation was 5%, and a no-deal WTO estimation was 8%. And you can imagine the, the FTA plus would be somewhere between 5 and 2, around 3 or 4 in here. Yesterday, Jonathan Portes, uh, a economist at King's, uh, was involved in a report for a global future, and they turned the Treasury estimates into what this would actually mean in terms of borrowing for the public sector, in terms of cost per week, in terms of the percentage uh, of the cost to the NHS budget. They tried to put it in real terms that they could ask the public about, and you can see here that the estimated additional borrowing costs of being in the Norway would be 17 billion, 81 billion if you're in the, the WTO No Deal, 57 billion if you're in the Basic Free Trade Agreement, around about 40 billion if you're in the FTA Plus or the bespoke option that the government would like at the moment, and you can see the consequences of this. They, they tried to put this together in a way that they could use in a survey. And I'll come back to so my little sketch of their uh, survey results, and if you, if you maybe get into that, you But from an economics point of view, you can see then for the softer Brexit, the less the economic hit is essentially a big takeaway from economic analysis. You can also argue it's the same from the EU side. But the problem for the UK when negotiating with the EU is that the relations are very asymmetric. So although the UK would be the EU's second largest external trading partner, the US actually in terms of volume of trade, and a percentage of, of total external trade, the US would be the EU's largest external trading partner, the UK would be second. On the other hand, the EU would be the UK's largest external trading partner. 2016, it was 43% of UK exports in goods and services went to the EU27. Total trade, exports plus imports, represented 12% of UK GDP. So 12% of UK GDP was traded with the EU27 in 2016, according to Commission Eurostat estimates. On the other side, UK trade with the EU is worth 16% of UK of EU exports to the UK, worth between 3 and 4% of total EU27 GDP. And if you talk to my trade bargaining colleagues in the econ department, they'll tell you that the biggest predictor of what kind of trade agreement you get is what the, the relationship is between this number and this number. So what's you know, how much is at stake? How much are you willing to lose? How much do you try to gain? One of the biggest predictors of the type of deal that you get is this asymmetric balance between what percentage of your GDP is there. It's a very simple, nice proxy that often predicts what kind of deals you get. So for example, the EU often gets what it wants when it negotiates with Korea or with Canada or with pretty much anybody else because it's a huge market. And because it's much, other states are much more desperate to get their goods into that market than they are to get their goods into that state's market because of the asymmetry. And that's the problem that the UK is going to find. There's another asymmetry, though, which is going to be, I think, quite determinant of the outcome. And this is actually the content of the imbalance of trade. So this, again, is 2016 data. And this shows the, the volume or net trade uh, in goods and services between the UK and the EU27. So this means that in goods, the UK exports around about 150 billion 
volume and it imports around 250 billion. So on balance, the UK is net importing around 100 billion in goods from 27. So you can argue therefore that you know BMW producers and Prosecco makers want to carry on selling their goods in the UK. We've heard a lot about that. And when you look at services, though, the relationship is the other way around. So we export around about 80 billion and we import around about 70 billion, which means we net export around 70 billion. So two things to note here. One, the goods balance is much bigger than the services balance. And two, the goods balance is we are the net importers and we are net exporters of services. You might criticize and say this is a very cancelist view. We don't, you know, all trade is good, whether you're importing or exporting and creating jobs, it's all good. But we're in a world where this has become very political. When you think about Trump and the White House, when you think about what Macron's politics is in France, this has all become very political now. And so from this, this would suggest from the EU's perspective, they'd be very happy with a basic goods agreement that says zero tariffs on goods and services, on goods, zero tariffs on goods, zero quotas on goods. Yeah, we're happy with that. We can carry on selling that. We don't need to import financial services from London. We can do it ourselves. So you can see this is an asymmetry that also could play into where we're going to be heading. And the impact from the EU side is like pretty small. So this is a report for the Internal Market Committee in the European Parliament by a group of very senior economists here, well-known political economists, and they estimated what would be the effect of the WTO option and the FTA option on each of the member states as a percentage of their GDP. Their figures for the UK are pretty similar to the British Treasury. Ireland, interestingly, would be hit very badly Germany, France, maybe rounding errors. Maybe rounding errors that you wouldn't notice. So it just doesn't mean as much. The Brexit deal, the economic consequences for the EU27 are not going to be anything like they are going to be for the UK because of the asymmetry for the balance of trade between us. One of the big issues, of course, is financial services. Um, this is estimates from Andre Sapir, who's a professor of economics at the UOB in Brussels, and he has a paper at Bruegel where he tries to look at the options of this, and he says if you look at wholesale markets in financial services, about 90% of the European wholesale market in financial services is based in the UK. Now, that's very dangerous if you're the ECB, you want actually to have some of that market inside a single market rather than leaving it offshore in London. But on the other hand, a lot of the continental businesses like the deep pockets of the city of London. They like the fact that if you want to raise revenue, you come to the city of London, you get the banks for the big banks, and you have all the ancillary services that go along with that, the international law firms, the accounting firms, everything else. So you can argue that they don't, they don't trust yet Paris or Frankfurt. Um, so what most people are estimating is the type of things that he's estimating, that some of the business from London will move, will move perhaps not as much as everybody expects. So even if on financial services there isn't a real deal that allows access to financial services, London will still remain Europe's financial services capital. And it will take quite a long time for this to shift to some of the other member states. He estimates actually that the impact would be a 4 to 30% of wholesale trade, uh, which would be around about 10% of the total business of the city of London. There are various options for financial services. If you, the most liberal option would be if we stay in the EEA and carry on with passport. Passporting means that if you're registered as a bank or insurance company in London, you can provide those services to any other member state. 
The second option, the main problem of it would be that the, the EU 27 would be setting the UK standards. We'd be leaving, and then the EU would, of course, be setting the financial services standards that we have got by and we wouldn't be sitting around that table. And without us sitting at that table, those standards will change. They inevitably will. In a sense, you're then going to be in a situation where 60 or 70% of wholesale financial services trade is going to be in London, regulated by the continent. And that's not a good situation for the The British government is unlikely to want that, and the EU is unlikely actually to give it. The British government has asked for mutual recognition, meaning, look, why don't we, we trust each other? You set your standards, we set our standards, we trust each other. Why can't we then just have free trade in financial services above those standards? And the Barnier says to Davis, God, are you kidding me? I mean, you know, we don't trust you guys to uphold you. Stands. As soon as you're out the door, you're going to get rid of the capital on bankers' salaries and God knows what else. Bankers' bonus. Um, so, what the best we can hope for, I think, is some sort of regulatory equivalence. Regulatory equivalence requires some common minimum standards, agreement on some common minimum standards, and then you then the agreement to trade above to, to trade services above those standards. The EU actually has regulatory equivalence agreements with lots of non-EU member states for financial services. With the United States. But it's very different allowing a small amount of trade between New York City and the single market compared to the huge volume of financial services trade you're going to get between London. It's much more competitive. London is a much more competitive situation. So the Commission is unlikely to be as generous in its regulatory equivalence agreements that it offers to London in this area. And then there would be big uncertainty for you. I was talking to a former student of mine today who's in the Dutch Central Bank and working on Brexit, and I asked him about regulatory agreements. He said, well, the problem is that if you're a bank, you're worried that the Commission can unilaterally pull the plug if they don't like, for whatever reason, the new regulatory standards that both are set, and you've got 30 days' notice that your trading will stop. If you're a bank, you can't risk that. So regulatory privilege, from that point of view, with the Commission's ability to unilaterally withdraw that right, it's going to be very difficult for banks to be uncertain. So we can move on to some of the, the politics here. I think there's lots of different narratives about Brexit. I think there's two dominant narratives politically from the UK. One of the narratives is a sort of liberal, libertarian narrative. People, the politicians like to call themselves liberal leavers, but the sort of think tanks that these guys belong to or the stuff that they read are heavily libertarians. So this is a, a view espoused by the Adam Smith Institute, the Economist for Free Trade, used to be called Economist for Brexit, the Legatum Institute, Institute for Economic Affairs, the Initiative for Free Trade run by Daniel Hammond. These are the groups espousing a very liberal libertarian view of Brexit, often talking about Singapore on Thames view. Brexit's for them all about sovereignty, the ability of the UK to set its own regulatory standards, i.e. to get rid of Brussels red tape if you press them on what that means. They reluctantly admitted it's getting rid of the social environment standards. And it means allowing the UK to sign new free trade agreements with the rest of the world and the new emerging markets that the EU has not been able to sign trade agreements with. So Mexico, Brazil, China, India. So very large emerging markets. The EU does not have agreements with. The UK could do deals with them. The red lines from this perspective are no ECJ jurisdiction because we want sovereignty and we need to be outside the regulatory framework of the EU. So outside the single market, so we can set our own rules, and outside the customs union, so we can agree these new free trade agreements. That's very different to an alternative narrative. 
narrative about Brexit, which is a more nationalist narrative, which I like to characterize as a federal sort of trend version of Brexit. This is a narrative of actually the Leave.eu campaign, of Farage, of UKIP, of Migration Watch, of various other people around those frameworks. And it's actually, I'm going to show you the view of the majority of the voters. Here, Brexit's all about reducing immigration. It's about gaining sovereignty to protect British jobs, to protect British workers, to protect British industry, to actually increase public spending, to increase funding for the NHS and so on. It's about more public intervention, more state intervention, more public spending, and control of immigration. That's a complete antithesis to this libertarian narrative <laughs> of the libertarian leaders sitting around the cabinet table. The red lines in this are similar when it comes to ECJ and outside the single market, but there's a different red line, which is about the free movement of people. It's amazing over the last few days to watch how people like Gove are starting to try and shift the debate about the free movement of people. Having May said, well, actually, we leave the EU so we can take control of our borders and reduce immigration. We've got Gove yesterday saying, actually, Britain's the most pro-immigration country in Europe, the data shows. And look at the public outcry about the Windrush. That means we're all liberals and we love immigrants. Okay, <laughs> interesting. It was interesting to see some of the response on social media to what he was saying, which, and even some of the response of was people like David Goodhart to what he was saying, saying, no, 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 this is why we voted for me. So as I mentioned that the EEA option is very difficult politically. You can go back actually to 2013 to a House of Commons Foreign Affairs Committee report where they were looking at options for the UK and considering various different options. Actually, you already were considering them back then. And there's a nice passage in that report that to me sums up what the problem is. And the members of the committee had actually gone to Oslo and Bern to, to, to ask what it was like for Norway and Switzerland. And they came up with the following. Norway and Switzerland are in practice obliged to adopt EU legislation over which they've had no effective say. On our visits to Oslo and Bern, we gave the impression that both Norway and Switzerland were prepared to accept what they acknowledged to be a democratic deficit as their price for their continued access to parties <coughs> in the market. However, our interlocutors in both Bern and Oslo largely advised the UK to remain inside the EU as a way of retaining influence over the legislation they would be obliged to adopt if they were in the single market. So, Jacob Rees Monk. Quite rightly, I think, calls this the vassal state option. It's very similar, actually, to Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is not a US state, it's a Commonwealth. It has to apply all US legislation. There's no representation. Uh, they have to serve in the US military, and so on. It's very similar to that type of relationship. It's an imperialist relationship. <laughs> and I mentioned that the attitudes of the Leave voters are not uh, consistent with this liberal view. In fact, there was a lovely report by the Garton out a few weeks ago. Matthew Elliott is a former student of mine, by the way. Uh, Matthew Elliott is the guy who ran the Leave campaign. Uh, he took my course on EU politics and told me that having taken my course on EU politics, he was never a skeptic. So I said, I can't lay that on me, Matthew. That's not fair. So Matthew Elliott is now at Legatum, and he edits this report for Legatum Institute, which is a public opinion survey. And he, the tone of the report is, oh no, the British people are not libertarians after all. <laughs> so I took the British election study data, and I looked at the liberal values and some of the economic values, so liberal social values and liberal economic values, and looked at whether they predicted whether you voted to leave. So if you're this side of the line, it means these things predicted you 
were more likely to vote leave, so vote to remain, sorry, vote to leave, and if they were this side of the line, it means you were, they predicted you voting to remain. So if you oppose the death penalty, you were definitely going to vote remain. If you're in favour of the death penalty, you were going to vote leave. So death penalty, children should not obey, opposition to censorship, pro-gender equality, pro-ethnic minority equality, pro-gay and lesbian equality, pro-immigration and pro-environmental protection. All of those things predicted you voting remain. And the opposite of those predicted you voting Interestingly, the, the economic values are a bit more mixed. If you're in favour of redistribution of wealth, you are more, you are more likely actually to vote leave. But if, you, if you're in favour of business interests, you are more likely to vote remain. If you're in favour of employer interests, you're more likely to vote. You are more likely to sorry, you're more likely to vote, less likely to vote leave. If you're in favour of increasing taxes, you are more likely to vote leave. If you're in favour of public spending cuts, you are more likely to vote. So it's a mixed picture. Clearly, social conservatives voted leave, and economic values are mixed. Some people with some types of economic liberalism correlate with voting to remain, and some types of economic liberalism correlate with voting to leave. It's a much more mixed picture when it comes to. So you can think about this because of the type of coalition. The older, rural, southern, wealthy voters who voted leave are probably economic because <coughs> they want to cut taxes and cut public spending. If you're a lower income inner city voter in the north of England in a post-industrial city who voted leave, you're in favour of redistribution of wealth and increasing spending on the NHS and raising taxes. So you can see how the, the Leave Coalition on Economics actually is a mix of different types of values. But on social questions, they share the same things that were social conservatives and they were really anti-immigration. We also did some survey on attitudes towards EU and non-EU migrants. So the debate about EU migrants has focused, the debate about free movements of people of course has focused on taking back control to reduce the number of EU migrants coming. But we did the first survey to actually ask people about their preferences of EU versus non-EU migrants. And no matter how you cut the public, by class, education, age, gender, income, region, everybody wants to reduce non-EU migrants more than EU migrants. And that's got nothing to do with that ambition of the So this is not going to, so you know, you might, we're in the midst of the Windrush issue right now. You might think as a result of that, that of course the public loves uh, Commonwealth immigrants. Well, the data doesn't show that actually. Uh, we have the, the average member of the public wants to reduce immigration largely from the EU and from outside the EU and is appalled at the way people are treated by that office. And when asked what the public wants or thinks of these different options, YouGov in 2016, I think, did the best design survey on this, and it still holds up as, I think, the best design survey so far on this. They asked people in a random order, do you want a hard Brexit, a Norway-style deal, or a Canada-style deal? And they've got some nice descriptions that fit exactly the way I've described them. And they asked people, do you think this scenario would be good or bad for Britain? Do you think this scenario would or would not respect the results of the referendum? So people think that the Canada option wins in terms of being good for Britain, Hard Brexit would be bad for Britain. The Norway option would be bad for Britain. When asked, do you think it respects the referendum result, either a hard Brexit or the Canada would respect the referendum result. The Norway EEA would not respect the referendum result. Now we move to the EU side. 
and the politics on the EU side. And we've heard from the EU side there's a lot of politics too, and it's about saying no cherry picking. There's two sides to no cherry picking. One element of no cherry picking is to say we're not going to allow the UK to have some free movement without other elements of free movement. And the German SPD is particularly strong about this, and they're sitting around the cabinet table in Berlin. And they say, we're not going to let bankers in London have free movement of capital if they don't also accept free movement of people. And you're not going to have free movement of goods and services without also free movement of people. So this is the, it's actually a political choice. It's not an economic choice. This is a political choice in the United States. And it's really about contagion. It's about the idea that if you let the UK pick and choose the bits of the EU that it likes and the freedoms that it likes, others will start to want the same because of the rise of populism. That's the first element. The second element of contagion is if you let the UK pick and choose what it wants, it has an impact on every other deal the EU already has. With Norway, with Switzerland, with South Korea, with Canada, or with everybody else in the world. 172 agreements that the EU has with us. Those are really significant in terms of their economic impacts. They're very sensitive to doing a deal with Britain that has knock-on consequences for those agreements as well. So the EU wants to keep it simple to the off-the-shelf things that the EU already has, the EEA particularly, or a basic free trade. The other problem with a FTA plus or Canada plus 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 type deal is about mutual recognition. So Stefan de Rink was speaking at LSE, Stefan and I, Stefan de Rink is the Chief Advisor to Barnier, he and I were doing our PhDs together in Florence. I've kept in touch with him recently in particular. And Stefan has been banging on about the fact that mutual recognition is not something that the Brits can have outside the Finally now, I think that's starting to hit to sink home in London. Davis and Co. here have been saying, why can't we just have mutual recognition about everything? Why can't the EU be very creative? Meaning, why can't they just let us have it? Mutual recognition inside the EU only exists for goods. One, it doesn't exist for services. Service providers in one member state are not free to provide their services in another member state without any restrictions on that. They have to be registered locally, except for things like passporting and banks and financial services. The broad uh, directive on services failed. The, pro the proposed complete mutual recognition of services, it failed. Don't yet have free movement of services inside the EU. free movement of goods. Second, that free movement of goods only applies inside the EEA. It doesn't add bits and pieces with Switzerland. That mutual recognition on goods does not really exist in free trade agreements with third countries outside the So you're only going to get that mutual recognition of standards for goods really if you're in. And thirdly, that mutual recognition for goods and, and the limited mutual recognition for services inside the EU is backed up by legislation. The possibility that if something goes wrong or something fails, ultimately you can regulate it through standard EU harmonisation through the EU institutions backed up by the European Court of Justice. And because of that framework, it makes it very difficult to offer the UK outside the EU extensive What's interesting on the contagion issue, that was just showing you rising support for populist parties, as you will know. Um, there was a nice survey by YouGov in uh, late 2016, where YouGov is now based in several countries across Europe, and they asked people 
After Brexit, how likely do you think other countries will leave the EU in the next 10 years, or your country will leave the EU in the next 10 years? Okay, of course, they think other countries and the What's interesting is most countries in the EU think a country will leave the EU in the next 10 years, but not their own. <laughs> Somebody else is going to leave, but we're definitely not. So this is Italy, Romania, France, Lithuania, Holland, Sweden, Germany, Denmark, Spain. A majority of people in these countries think another EU member state will leave, but very small minorities think that actually it's going to be that. Contagion, I think, is far less of a threat than the, than the EU thinks. And I think it's largely because of economics. So this is data on trade integration in goods. So this is intra-EU trading goods as a percentage of a country's total trade. And this is intra-EU trading goods as a percentage of a country's GDP. Here's the UK. 48%, and that represents about 20% of GDP. We are the least economically integrated. We are very economically integrated, but the least economically integrated. Average in the EU is around 65% of a country's trade with the rest of the EU, which constitutes around 40% of a country's GDP. And if you're some of these smaller member states, it's absolutely massive. So Hungary, Orban, if, all, if Hungary leaves the single market, it would be absolute economic suicide. It represents 80, over 80% of Hungarian trading goods, and over 130% of Hungarian GDP because that it's a transit state. It's the same for services. Here we are, around 42% of our trade in services, and that constitutes around 6% or 9% of our GDP. Again, I think that actually, of all of the EU member states, the UK is just about the only member state that could survive economically outside of the I think the threat of contagion is much lower. The other final political element is the ratification hurdle. There's a difference between the ratification of the withdrawal agreement and the transition agreement under Article 50, which just requires qualified majority in the Council, simple majority in the Parliament, and majorities in the House of Commons and the House of Lords. The future relationship will be ratified, will finish negotiation after we've left in March 2019, and be ratified before December 2020. It requires unanimous agreement in the Council, simple majority in the European Parliament, majorities in the House of Commons and House of Lords, and probably ratification in all national and regional parliaments, the EU 30 plus parliaments, and probably potentially even a referendum in Ireland. I was in Dublin on Monday this week, and that was one of the things they were talking about. We will probably need to put the deal on the Irish border to a referendum. Good luck with that. <laughs> and as um, one of my students said to me, who's Belgian, um, I saw, he was talking about the ratification of the CETA, the Canadian, the EU-Canada agreement, was blocked by the Walloon Parliament until they finally compromised. And he said, put it this way, this is not the climate to pass a very liberal free trade agreement that looks beneficial to Anglo-Saxon bankers through the Belgian regional parliaments. It's not going to happen. So, bearing that in mind, what, does, what do I think is going to happen in terms of buying? I think we haven't got what we call single peak preferences, which would mean they both have, somebody would 
rank the order one, two, three, four, and the other one would rank it four, three, two, one, and then you could just compromise and meet somewhere in the middle. You don't have that. From the UK side, the British government's been pretty clear it wants an FTA plus, plus, plus. If it can't get that, a basic FTA would probably be okay. And an EEA minus would be the next best thing, but the EEA out of the question because we'd be a vassal state and it would cross every red line of the government. From the EU side, it's really, as Barnier has said, EEA would, be, would limit economic costs, would be very simple politically from the EU. The UK just moves to be Norway, fine. You don't care if you're a vassal state, that's your problem, not ours. Beyond that, a basic free trade agreement would probably be best. It would have a hit economically, but politically would have the least threat of contagion to other deals that the EU has with third countries. And it would be fine for the EU side because it would largely be trading goods, and trading goods they're net exporters to the UK. If it doesn't cover services initially, so what? As banks eventually move to Frankfurt. And then they're kind of indifferent between the last two options, where there would be risky for them. FTA plus covering financial services would be risky because they don't necessarily trust London to regulate financial services in the way that they want, and this would have knock-on effects in terms of its agreement with Switzerland and lots of other countries. And the EEA minus would be a very dangerous precedent to set that you can have free movement in goods, services, and capital, but not free So the EU doesn't want that. So we have our little two by two bargaining game here with the rank orders. So the blue is the EU one two, indifferent between these three, these two here. The UK one two, indifferent. So if you're the EU, you prefer either of these to these. So you're going to play hardball and go for either of these two. You're the UK, knowing that the EU is going to play hardball, you have a choice between either this or this, so you're going to go for this. So I would imagine that, given where we are, given the preferences of the actors involved, the most likely outcome is that we're heading towards quite a basic FTA. Partly to do with the hurdles, partly to do with the politics, partly to do with the That doesn't mean we won't get something else. But this, I think, helps us think about what would need to change for us to get something else. So if you think of this, what I call type one shift, it would be a shift from down this corner to this. This would be a movement where we end up actually in the EEA. This would require a major shift in domestic politics in the UK. That's what it would take. It would need us to allow ECJ jurisprudence. It would need us to allow the free movement of people. Maybe that's starting to come with the shifting majorities in the House of Lords and House of Commons, but so far I think we're quite a long way from accepting that. What about a movement this way, from a basic FTA to this FTA plus? This shift, I think, would have to require either EU politics to change, to allow the UK to cherry pick, or would require the UK to be willing to make major side payments to make the, the EU indifferent between this and this. You'd have to pay something significant, major, some major concessions. I don't know what. I'm not sure even security would be enough. And a shift from here to here, I think, would need both domestic politics in the UK to change to allow ECJ jurisdiction and EU politics to change to allow the UK to change, <coughs> which is unlikely. So I think we're probably most likely going to be here. We could see a shift to need major change in domestic politics. Doubt whether we're going to see this kind of shift. Now, I told you I was going to show you the final data. UK public, what happens afterwards? 
that whatever deal we get, what happens afterwards is we will carry on negotiating with the EU for bolt-on agreements to the basic agreements that we get to, and domestic politics will react to those types of deals. And so this is data, can't quite see the yellow. Europe are going to change the questions it asks. So there's the solid lines here are what's called the membership question. Do you think your country's membership of the EU is a good thing? And then the dotted, the dashed lines are called the image question. Do you have a positive image? So here's Sweden. The blue here is the UK. Black here is Austria. Uh, the, the, the dark red here is Norway, and the dark light red here is Switzerland. So if you go back to the mid to the early 2000s, so when you think about when Austria and Sweden joined the EU in the mid-1990s, and Switzerland and Norway decided not to join the EU, there was no difference, really, there actually the EU. You roll forward 20 years, and you find that Norway and Switzerland are very anti -EU. They're public civilians. They like the EU, they want to join the EU, and they are an anti Compared to, when you look at the Swedish pattern, it's carried on going up, Austria has been largely flat. The UK is already much lower than Austria and Sweden, and my expectation is after we've left, the public will carry Because we will lose. The EU is a large beast and a rigid legal political organisation, and it does not like to compromise. And we will be on the negative end of what In some economic interests of both the UK and the U27 suggest a soft Brexit. If it was all about economics, it would be simple. Asymmetric economics, though, means that the EU is going to be far more interested in goods agreement than financial services. And the bargaining power is on the EU side, not on the UK side. The politics of both sides suggest it's going to be a harder Brexit. UK red lines suggest that the EEA or even EEA miners are going to be different. And the EU's red lines suggest that they really only want either EEA or a basic. Plus the ratification hurdle, it's anything that looks like something generous to the UK is going to be difficult to get through with these partners. So, I think that right now the best guess is that the bargain equilibrium is a basic free trade agreement. It's not to say we could get something else, but it does, I think, help us think about what would need to change for us to end up somewhere different. Uh, once we're out, there will be bolt-ons, we will carry on negotiating, a basic free trade agreement will not be the end of our relationship. But once we're out, it's going to be much more difficult to add bolt-ons than perhaps we think. 